MNK Takwaye now presents Legendary Part 2 from the Caraval Trilogy by Stephanie Garber. MK Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we finished up the second book in the Caraval trilogy by Stephanie Garber. It is called Legendary. And, well, by the time you guys listen to this, the third one will be out. But we have to wait like a whole week before we even get the book. And it's, I don't like to wait. I'm not used to doing that for our podcast. Usually we do such quick turnaround. I know. It's going to be so weird to like have to wait to read the third book, let alone talk about it. Yeah. In between recording episodes, it'll be almost a month between this episode and the next episode, which is just the longest we've ever gone, especially mid-series. And I thought you were going to say, by the time this comes out, I'll be married. Oh, and that. That's also true. (laughs) Should I have said, I'm Katie Tobias instead? (gasps) Oh my gosh. Do we have to redo our intro? Do we have to redo our logo? (laughs) Wait, does it have our name in it? Or yeah, our last in it? it does. Oh. Well, maybe that'll be my reason I can't change my name. Sorry, yeah. James. I'm a brand. Yeah. We're kind of important <laughs> right now, and we can't change our name, because our 200 fans will be very confused. <laughs> oh, that would be funny. Maybe yeah. I could, maybe I should just, like, adopt, like, an accent and, like, a whole new personality for our next recording to be... For Katie Tobias. Yeah, a new personality. <laughs> That won't be confusing. (laughs) That won't be hard to maintain. (laughs) Well, yes. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, 10 days from now, I will be a married woman. I know, I can't wait. And I'll see you in person again, which will be great. I know, I know. It was so fun to record last week. I edited that episode in like two hours, like record time, because just being in person, everything was so seamless. I like didn't need to cut out anything. It was amazing. That's great. I still was nervous just because I feel like we talk, we get excited and we talk at the same time sometimes, but but we can also read each other better when we're in person. Totally. It's so much easier. Yeah. It was funny. I saw it from you before I think I even ate dinner. I was like, wow, I'm still eating banana cookies, but she's edited a whole episode. Also, I don't have much going on in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in a couple weeks, I won't either. Can't wait to just read on a beach. I bet. But... Speaking of wedding plans and fake fiancés, or fiancés, which leads to fake fiancés, what do you think about Legendary? Um, okay. I know where you're going with this because I really disliked the end, and this is such a little part of the book, but it really irritated me when Scarlett was like, oh, I'm going to give my real fiancé, Count Nicholas, a chance instead of Julian. Like, what? Why? I don't know. I kind of liked it because, I mean, it seemed a little bit like petty the way she handled it, but given that she had exchanged letters and been ready to marry this guy and he hadn't actually done anything wrong, and Julian, while they care for each other, has continually lied to her. That's true. She's not giving that same guy a chance who did all that bad stuff from book one. You know, this is a guy who all we really know about him is He was willing to marry her, and in his letters, he promised to, like, get her and her sister out of this. Like, we don't really know enough about him to know for sure if he's good or bad, but I kind of do think her giving him a chance isn't that bad, considering they were engaged to be married, like, a week ago, and she was totally on board with it. That's true. I guess I just, I really kind of believed in her and Julian, and so now I'm just kind of sad that she's presenting yet another obstacle in the path of them being together. Well, it's interesting because we've seen a little bit of her and Julian through this book, but because we're getting everything from Tella's perspective, it's been a little bit hard to follow what's going on with Scarlet. Very true. This whole book has been about Tella, and like we just see little glimpses of her, really. So I'm really curious to see what book three, I know we discussed this a little bit last time, which perspective it's in, if it'll like alternate between the two girls, or go back to Scarlet, or oh, stick with Tella, cool. or do, because I don't really know who the third person would be at this point. I, th- I would be really cool if it alternated between the two sisters. Yeah, but then... I would really like that. I think they have different enough voices, but I would Sometimes when authors do that, it gets harder to, like, remember which one you're reading, especially because they're sisters. So I'd be curious to see 
if she does that, how well it's handled. Well, it's all in third person, though. So That's true. Okay, and then Tella also had a fake fiancé, which I'm a little bit confused. Not confused. That might be the wrong word. But, so are they broken up? Oh, my goodness. Her and Jax? Yeah. Or her and Dante? <laughs> well, her and Dante were never really together. I mean, there was definitely the spark and attraction, and we thought things were headed that way, and they shared some good moments. But they were never a thing. I'm curious, like, are she still supposed to keep up the charade about Jack? I don't think Tella is invested in any guy right now because she really has had the rug pulled out from under her in the last 24 hours with this big revelation that we just discovered, the identity of legend. Oh yeah, this is pretty big. (sighs) Even though we kind of knew it was coming, but you've also felt like it couldn't possibly be true. I know. That last scene where, like, you know the next person she's going to see is Legend, and she can, like, hear his voice, and she's like, no, 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 please don't let it be him. Yeah, I'm going to keep my eyes closed. And it is. Yeah. <laughs> Great solution. Um, so, yeah, I think now that she knows that Dante is Legend, I think she is really struggling with if she can trust him, what his endgame is. I mean, he, I think he clearly does care for her. Like, I think that is genuine, but... I don't know if she's going to want to be with him anymore. And it's not just because he lied about his identity or she's suspecting his motives because he did still, like, save her from the cards. But then he just ran off without explaining anything. It wasn't like he was like, hey, I love you. Bye. He just was like, hey, bye. See ya. I'm going to go steal a throne. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, but this is the other question I had. Sorry, I'm jumping. Okay. Like I always do. But when they were in the park, so after she went to the temple and saw that memory of her mom, like, giving her up to, you know, making that deal or whatever, so that, I don't know, whatever that whole scene was, and then she runs away, and then Dante follows her, Mm -hmm. and then they go to this, like, fountain where you can make, you can forget things if you want, and whatever, this whole thing. I thought she told Dante what was going on with Jax. Mm, About the cards? Yeah. But so did she not tell him that she was supposed to bring him legend? No, she. I think she did because, I mean, that's the whole thing. Like, she can either keep her bargain with Jax and free the fates so they can rule, and that would allow her to free her mother, or she could give the cards to legends knowing that she and her mom might die. But I think she told, I think she told Dante that because at the end, remember, she was like, Jax is on his way. And he kind of knew, like, oh, crap, she was going to give him the cards. Okay. I thought maybe it was still, like, a surprise that he had to leave, whereas I... Okay, I see. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, you know what? There was a lot going on here, and um, it almost was too much for me. You know, like, I felt like there was just so much crammed into this book and so many... It wasn't that we didn't have answers. It was just, like, the author just kept giving us little hints of things, and like kept adding on to everyone's character and like normally that's great but I was having trouble keeping straight like the two choices that Tella had to make and it's like because there were so many connected pieces to it yeah Mm -hmm. and it was like there's these cards and like the prince of hearts is a fate and he wants the cards so that he can escape and release all the fates but if there's consequences to that happening and then on the other hand, if she gives the cards to Legend, there's its own set of consequences. And then, like, that part when she meets Jax and her she hears his heart beating and she's like, oh my gosh, I'm your true love. Your kiss isn't fatal to me. And then I was like, okay, so that's throwing in, like, another piece to the puzzle. What's going on there? Which is also interesting. So is Jax in love with her? I know that the fates feel emotions differently, but how is that going to play out? Is he going to, like, try and win her over for real? I have no idea because he always acted so, in, like, almost cruelly indifferent to her. Yeah, and just, yeah, he doesn't seem like a good guy, but you also kind of feel bad for him a little bit. You do. Was, like, trapped in a card and, yeah. And it it seems like people are um, misjudging him a little bit because they spread those rumors about how he killed his last fiance. And then remember he said, I didn't kill my last fiance. She was killed by someone who didn't want me to take the throne. And so then I was wondering, did Dante kill his fiance? Like, is Dante a good guy? Well, it's curious too, like, what is the deal with the Empress? Like, was she manipulating Tella? Because she seemed not super thrilled about the heir. Like, is that really her son? They're just, like, there's still, I feel like the Empress still has missing pieces, even though she's dead now or whatever. Totally. And how does she know so much about Tella's mom? Because she was the one who was like, listen, I know 
things about your mother, you need to come talk to me. And she's the one who tells her that her mother's opal ring is the um, key from the Temple of Stars. So she, like, gives her a big piece of the puzzle. So I'm like, how is the Empress related to Tella's mother, and where does that all fall into place? Or was that all just information fed from legend to manipulator? Because it really were working together. That's a good question. But it's, like, it's interesting to learn more about her mother and, like, how her name was Paradise and how she was a thief and she stole the deck of cards because it was, like, a dare that she could steal anything and then she realized, like, how powerful they are. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious. um, I, I don't really know exactly why she fled still. Someone said something about how she saw... A few, the future predicted in the cards and she ran away because of that but we didn't really learn any more about that did we well we don't know how she still got into the cards well well okay here's what right. i think happened i think the magic was starting to fade which is why tella could see the cards mm-hmm. and when the mom realized that she wanted to hide them away from her family mm-hmm. but i think that so is that why she fled i think so okay but i think she planned to come back but i think it had faded just enough that jacks got out of the cards and created a new one with her in it so she couldn't come back that's what i think happened oh so you think jacks trapped her mother because didn't he basically say something like he trapped her mother or just that he could get her out i guess he just said he could get her out yeah he did say i well he said dante said he didn't know her mother was trapped in one of the cards but the thing is like yeah you can either release someone from a card by taking their place or by breaking the curse on the cards and releasing all the fates but you can, Jax can create the cards with his magic. And I'm assuming Legend can with his magic, right? Well, that's the thing because they said only an immortal with, I'm trying to find where I wrote it down. They were like, only an immortal with immense power could break the curse on the cards. So now I'm like, what is Dante then? Like, I know he's Legend, but like, what is he really? Is he like an immortal? I don't know. Also, wasn't Legend in love with their grandma back in the day? Annalise, yeah. And wasn't Julian... So are Julian and Dante, like, really old? Yeah, there's, like, a potion that makes that keeps them young. Wasn't that what they said? Like, as long as they're in the game, they'll keep their youth. I guess that I, like, in my mind knew that applied to Legend, and I guess we already knew that Julian was Legend's brother, but I also, like, hadn't thought about the fact that Julian's been doing this for, like, lifetimes. <laughs> okay, so I guess they are technically immortal then. But then at the same time, like, what happens if they leave the game? Like, do they have to stay in the game if they want to stay young? And what does that mean for Tella and Scarlet if they want to be with them? I can't. Okay, so I don't think the third book is a game. Do you think it still is? I don't know. I mean, I didn't think the second book was going to be a game. And I was wrong about that. So I I thought the (laughs) second book was. But now I, like, don't understand how the third book can be almost. I think we're going to learn more about the history of legend in the third book. Because... We still have so much to learn about Dante. Like, remember when he gave us his past about, like, his... Being shipped off. Yeah, his father, like, tried to sell him because... So Dante's mother slept with his father for some reason, like, to gain something. He said she did it to steal something from him. And then after Dante was born, she dropped him off with his dad and then wrote a letter to his father's wife telling her about the affair... And then his father tried to sell him, and then he was kidnapped by pirates. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, yeah. And then he convinced the pirates to keep him. <laughs> yeah. Which so... then also makes me curious. So how is, is Julian his half-brother or his full brother? Who's older? Who's younger? Like, I'm still just no curious idea. about that relationship. But here's yes. why I don't think. I can't imagine that either of the sisters would play a game again. I can't either. I definitely think that they're still there and dealing with the brothers but I can't imagine that either one of them's going back and I think they're both gonna like demand answers and maybe there'll be games played but not like a true full five day full city game yeah I think I think that's probably fair I, I think and I'm curious to meet the new count and yeah. to see the mom and what her story and explanation is and if she can win over between I'm curious how both Scarlet and Tella react because before this Scarlet was very anti their mom like Basically, nothing she can do can justify what happened to her, mm-hmm. right? Can justify the decision she made of leaving or whatever. But now yeah. Tella's seen this memory of her being... Tri- like, I'm just curious how it affects the girls to have their mom back. Yeah, and it seems complicated because, like you said, Tella was really upset when she saw that mm-hmm. memory of her mom basically bartering her. 
And then the more she thinks about it at the end, when she actually goes into the vault and gets the cards, she comes to the realization, like, this is my mother. I can't abandon her. I have to give the cards to Jack Mm -hmm. so I can free her. Like that. It was kind of like the two impossible choices that Scarlett had at the end of the book where they were both really tempting, but at the end of the day, there was really only one choice she knew she was going to make. And so... You know, they, she has that moment where Tella sacrifices herself and is willing to take her mother's place in the cards. And I think that's why she won the game, honestly, because they always said, like, the clues aren't important. You win because of what you're willing to sacrifice. And so I almost think that's why she won. And that's why Dante ended up being forced to free the fates at the end, breaking the curse, so that he could get Tella out. But I feel like Jack's planted her mother in the cards knowing that one of the daughters or Tella would exchange her place for her and then Dante would be forced to free all the fates yeah it's hard to figure out who predicted how far each way yeah because even Dante freeing them I guess maybe he had to do it during Carval where that's where his power's strong or whatever but part of me is like why don't you just keep, like she's safe in the cards obviously you don't want to keep her there forever but why don't you like try to figure out a way around it instead of freeing all these fates who are trying to kill you right because dante found a loophole to get tella into the vault right so she wouldn't have to fulfill her mother's debt yeah we still don't know what that deal that he struck for that was i'm so curious because all we know is he has the same brand that theron has now the who was the temp the guard yep well, and I'm curious if that, if whatever deal he made is part of why he ran off on her. Not that that necessarily excuses it, but it's all complicated. It's just... Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to take in. And if he just wanted to be emperor, if that was his end game, why? Yeah. Why does he want to take over the throne? And again, what does the empress know? Because she kind of seemed, she seemed like she was a fan of legend, not a fan of Jack's. Uh-huh. And... She seemed weird about her heir, which we didn't know at the time was legend. So now I'm like, I'm confused by everyone. I'm, I'm just confused. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. So, okay, I'm piecing it together now. Okay. If Dante is the lost heir, mm-hmm. the queen's child who thought was dead, is, da- is the empress then Dante's mother who slept with his father and then dropped him off with his dad and wrote the letter to his father's wife? Like, is that who the Empress is? Is it that woman? Wait, say that one more time. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, Dante's whole story is that his mother slept, had an affair with his father, even though his father was married. Oh, yeah. And then once he was born, his mother dropped him off with his dad and then, like, revealed the affair. Oh, yeah. So, is that the Empress? And we know the Empress had a crazy youth or whatever. Right. And so then I'm wondering, like, why did she sleep with... Dante's father what was it that she was trying to steal mm-hmm. yeah it's all coming together okay we, we, I just needed to talk it through with someone yeah there's all these different pieces and I keep forgetting like oh wait that's the same person so these stories right. are connected or whatever yeah mm-hmm. so and then I'll also remember um when Tella's mother was bartering for her she said don't underestimate my second daughter because she's going to possess great power yeah, I definitely think there's more to that barter than I don't think she was just yeah. giving her daughter away. I think it was like also a trust thing in her. Like, I think there was definitely more to it than that. But it's interesting to know what that really means or why. And also, like, what's wrong with her first daughter or, or not wrong with, but like, you know, what's the difference between <laughs> I feel like there's a reason she didn't want to give her the first daughter and did want to give her the second daughter. So does she see both mm-hmm. of their futures? And I don't know. <sighs> but stakes are raised. I really, again, I love, I really like the costumes again in this book, though. That's one thing that I, like, have mm-hmm. always liked since day one. I love when she goes to the ball dressed as the lost heir, and then, like, the headpiece changes into the shattered crown, and, like, all the people are dressed up as fates. Like, the descriptions were really eerie, but, like, really cool. Which just reminded me about the other fates that were coming out of the cards. Oh, right! The, um, the ones who were just like, the emperor what was that the empress and her handmaidens yep and she stabs the empress in the eye or the queen the queen yep that was kind of crazy but they were like actually hurting her Uh, yeah there's just there's a lot and i'm nervous to have all of these fates out now like yeah 
are they all on the same team or are they just a bunch of powerful like why did Jax want them all out because I think what if they're all out they can well I don't know he wanted legends to take the rest of legends power which makes sense to me but it makes me curious why he wants a bunch of other immortal magical people out because it doesn't I don't get the sense that they were all like buddies but I think they at once they all ruled together and they were all um, like rulers of the universe. Yeah. So maybe he wants them all out so they can take all take over the throne and rule and rule like they once did. Yeah. It's it's curious. Yeah, it is. And then there was that whole thing with um, the uh, when they go to the the emperor's house and they see the statues. You mean the like the servants who were frozen? Or whatever, that, those statues? Yeah, because yeah. they wanted them to look more lifelike. I don't know how if that fits in at all, but um, she, the woman who wished her husband would only remember his wife and the poisoner granted her the wish, but then her husband forgot every single person he ever met. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, like, this is like a lot of those others, you know, you have to be very careful what you wish for because it seems like technically you yeah. get what you asked for or you technically... The bargain isn't broken, but it has a lot more strings than you realize. Or there's, you know, I don't know, all these loopholes and stuff. Right. Well, and do you remember when Tella gave up her last memory with her mom in exchange for some stories about her mom? And we realized that she didn't actually, like, we. I'm so curious what that memory was. Well, I thought it was, um, because she's, it's her mother telling her that the fates trap people in playing cards and only a fate can free them unless... And that's where it ended. And I thought that unless was, unless someone takes your place. So I thought we did get the answer to that clue. I guess that's fair. That is a logical conclusion given what we know about (laughs) stuff. But I'm curious if there's more to, I want to know more about the mom and what she knows and what her plan was. Yeah. And like how Jax knew her. Yeah. How she got stuck in the car in the first place. Because he Mm -hmm. clearly knew her. I wonder if she fell in love with someone and took someone's place. Oh, do you think that's it? Do you think she fell in love with Jax and somehow when he was trapped in the cards, that's when she traded her place for him? I don't know. I don't know because I'm not clear on if the mother and the father were in love, if Tella's and um, Scarlett's parents were in love or not. Because I do get the sense that her or the dad like became worse when the mom left. And I sort of get the sense that the mom Mm -hmm. was happy there. But I don't necessarily get the scent. I, I don't know enough to know, like, was she trying to escape him? Was there any true love there? Like, obviously, they had two kids and, like, some... But she also might have been hiding from her past as a wanted criminal. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I'm just throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks at this point. No, and that, <laughs> I, I like it. Uh, did you do any research this week? Okay. So, when... Tella finds out that her mom was also this criminal, but kind of this popular Mm -hmm. criminal that people, like, sort of liked, including the Empress, like, knew her. and She was a celebrity. Yeah. So I was trying to look into a little bit about that, but I went down a rabbit hole (laughs) about... (laughs) I love your rabbit hole. Um, Wait, what is this thing called again? About hybristophilia. Do you know what that is? No. It's when someone gets sexually aroused over someone else committing an offensive or violent act. Whoa. So Bonnie and Clyde was kind of a good example sort of of this like, Mm, you mm -hmm. know, kind of criminals that sort of have like this popular following. But then I was trying to find people who like protected people from the police because they like agreed with their... I don't... Anyways, I ended up on like people who write to serial killers in prison and then... Oh, like Ted Bundy. Yeah. So I I went down this whole route. Yeah, I read a bunch of like creepy letters. Like Ted Bundy was creeped out by one of his fans. Like that... You have to be pretty creepy to creep out Ted Bundy, I feel like. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yes. To out-creep the creep. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But so part of this, it was like, why do these women fall in love with serial killers and okay. so it's it's not actually that common to be truly into um the hyperstophilia where you're like truly sexually aroused by people who committed crimes but there are a lot of people who pursue a relationship with someone who's committed a violent crime for various reasons Whoa. so some of those reasons i do not have that at all <laughs> but they they said like when do you cross the line from oh i like to watch 
all these documentaries and follow stuff. And, you know, even, you know how a lot of people were talking about how, um, like, Zac Efron playing Ted Bundy is, like, making him seem way more attractive and, blah, yeah. like, all this stuff. So there's several reasons why people might form a relationship with someone who has been accused of these horrendous, often violent, often sexually violent, like, totally terrible crimes. Mm-hmm. And... So one of them is obviously some of these people knew the person before they went to jail and doesn't believe that they committed the crime. So especially if someone has a relationship with a criminal that they don't believe that they committed the crime, they would not be classified this way because this is someone who's truly, uh, like, turned on by the crime itself. But then they said there's a lot of other, like, psychological reasons, and many of which might be subconscious, Mm. like people believing that their love can transform the convict so thinking that oh. they might even feel safer that way to be like if this guy ever got out of jail he would never hurt me because he loves me so like even though he did these horrendous things to other people i'm safe and i'm special and i like have you know gotten through to this like they feel special that's so narcissist that's such a narcissist way of thinking yeah. and kind of related they think that there's some degree of not believing that people can be that bad and so there must be like some kind of wounded background there and the nurturing Mm. side of someone is like driven into overdrive and they want to like protect that super harmed inner core of these killers or whatever Mm. so they like want to be saviors and then the other thing that that i read a lot about which is also very narcissistic is they want to share in the media spotlight whether consciously or unconsciously but it it can be an opportunity to kind of emerge from anonymity and they may Mm. even get like a book deal or a movie deal or a lot of news coverage or whatever but it kind of can make their lives seem exciting yep um but then i read a little bit about some different stories of people who this did not work out very well for so okay um there's this book called Women Who Love Men Who Kill. Wow. <laughs> what a title. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? But there were these two Australian Christian sisters named Avril and Rose, and they were both in long-term marriages, but they thought their marriages were boring. So they ended up falling in love with these two criminals. So one of them fell in love with a man who was a thief. Okay. And a week after he was released, he beat to death her. The, the lover. Oh my gosh. The Avril. And then the other woman fell in love with a man who'd killed his previous wife. What? And she had supposedly said before he was released, like, I have no fear. And like, you know, she loved him and all this stuff. But he ended up being sent oh back to gosh. jail because he tried to cut off her ear and yank out her teeth with pliers. <gasps> what? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? So, That's so most of the, crazy. in most cases, these aren't like oh, yes, love changed these people and, you know, whatever, whatever. But then I was reading about this woman um, who, so I guess there's this town in Florida, in Bradford County of all places, that has three prisons surrounding it. Mm -hmm. And one of those prisons houses 400 death row inmates. And there's a ton of people who, like, for visiting hours, there's a ton of women who come and, like, visit these people. And I was reading this story about this woman who is actually a attorney and basically fell in love with this violent criminal. So she had been engaged to her husband, or she she had been married from like age 18, and she became this legal advocate on behalf of death row inmates, and she ended up working with this guy, Oscar Bolin, who was a rapist and serial killer of women, and she started to like develop feelings for him, and basically she said like her husband didn't say I love you enough and um she just was like feeling ignored and all this stuff and so at some point her husband said to her like if you go to Oscar's trial tomorrow I'm going to divorce you and she was just like whatever I'm going to this trial and he gave her or she got a note at the trial from one of the reporters that said her husband had filed for divorce and I guess she like freaked out and went over to the defendant and said, will you marry me now? And he said, where's the preacher? And they got married 30 days later. And did it end okay? Like, he didn't, he didn't hurt her? Um, so I don't think he ever got out of jail. So they, okay. he didn't, like, hurt her or anything. But she had, she had children from her first marriage who, like, she was like, oh, yeah, they're fine. Like, they, 
he would never hurt them. It's all good. You know, like whatever. But there's this one of the daughters made a video about basically like how her mom marrying a serial killer affected her and her sisters and like sure it endangered them this mom is just oblivious to it too yeah oh that's so hard too because it's like she's making a choice that is not only affecting her but affecting her children and also like i it's just so tricky because like when you hear stories like that where it does end badly i feel like so many people's reaction is to be like oh you should have known better or like oh you know, you had it coming, and it's like, no one de- no one deserves that, no matter what, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, and if anything, it's like, how much worse, not worse, but these people who are harming people that love them and they've developed a relationship with, as a, not that you should attack a random stranger either, but in some ways that makes it almost even, I don't know, it's just, it's not, it's never good. <laughs> yeah, it's never good, and, and, and like, part of you is like, well, like, how can you not see how this might end badly, you know? Like, like how could you let yourself fall in love with someone like that but I think partly like I think you get so caught up with someone it almost turns into like a fixation or an infatuation where you like mm-hmm. literally can't help yourself well and they they did some of what I read too said some of these women feel safe because mm-hmm. they don't think the person's ever going to get out of jail so it's yep. it can also be like a safe relationship for them which is oh, okay. just kind of crazy to think about. And also they said, uh, one article I was reading was talking about how it's actually maybe linked to some of our like evolutionary need to have a man who can protect us. Like the fact that mm. a man has killed someone else can actually very subconsciously be like an indicator to his strength on a certain level that you can, yeah, protect Whoa. what's yours and like defend your family and all this stuff. so warped, but I totally get it. I mean, like, there's, like, a lot more to it. Yeah. Oh, wow. And, I mean, it's, like, common is the wrong word, but... It's not unheard of. Yeah, like, in 1987, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that prisoners had a constitutional right to marry, so I couldn't get actual stats on how many marriages take place in jails, but it's, like, it's one of their rights. I mean, you think about how few rights criminals have, especially those who are currently Mm -hmm. in jail. That's, like, kind of a saying something i actually can't wait to see this head bundy movie you know i'm a huge zach efron fan and i know and he said like multiple times like we were really careful not to glorify ted bundy and like make this a movie about him but it is kind of a fascinating story well and i feel like i watch them from a how do i not become a victim standpoint Mm -hmm. like part of what's fascinating to me is like this man was so charming and so charismatic you know good at what he did which is horrible but it true yeah like how do I spot someone so I don't end up there so how do I like not fall for the same thing like that's part of what's appealing to me at least at this point totally yeah and that's where I try I try to start with something related but uh there are no (laughs) marriages with criminals in this book so far but you know who knows what'll happen for some of these girls at the end of this well yeah marrying some crazy people. I would say Jax and Dante right now would be labeled criminals in my mind. (laughs) Yeah, both are not so good. (laughs) I had like a similar thing where I like had no idea what to research. So I started researching um, getting kidnapped by pirates. I decided I will save that for next week. So I'll I'll have something to share next week too. Um, And instead I started researching um, people who made heroic self-sacrifices Okay, good. That's uplifting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of. Um, it's just like such a big theme in these books. Like in Caraval and Legendary, we see Scarlet and Tella both make a big sacrifice to save someone they love. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to see if there were any inspiring stories from our world where someone made like a really big sacrifice so that others could live. And I found some really interesting stories that I had never really heard of before. So, okay, um, have you heard of the Chernobyl 3? No. Okay, so when the nuclear power plant in Chernobyl failed, there was a larger explosion that happened that immediately killed up some people. But there was a larger problem where um, there was a fire that started and, you know, there was a lot of radioactive smoke that went into the sky and it killed a lot more people. And... There was more radioactive fallout than was caused by either of the nuclear bombs that were dropped on Japan. So the damage was massive, and they were really nervous because a second explosion would have caused the entire Chernobyl complex to just 
the disaster would have been so much worse. And they said that nuclear fallout would have spread over half of Western Europe. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So the second explosion was avoided due in part to three men who are now called the Chernobyl Three. And what happens was uh, after the first explosion, the um, plant workers were really worried that radioactive material was traveling in a pool towards this body of water under the reactor. And if it came in contact, it would have caused a second explosion. So someone needed to go into this pool and drain it. Mm-hmm. And so there were two plant workers and one soldier who stepped forward to take on the job. Oh my goodness. Um, there's some controversy about whether they volunteered or if they just happened to be working that shift that day. But um, I think oh my goodness. the wide, widely held view is that these people stepped forward to volunteer to drain this pool of radioactive material can you imagine if you were just on duty that day and you no. weren't paying that much attention and you're like yeah sure i'll go drain this pool. like or like right you know? yeah <laughs> so they knew going in that they would be exposed to lethally high doses of radioactive material um yeah and then wow. i guess the, the soviet authorities assured the men that their families would be looked after was that true i don't know I honestly don't know, but they they found the valves to open and drain the pool, and it's it's also unclear because they think that you know the Soviet authorities were trying to downplay the incident a lot, so it's believed that none of the men actually died in the immediate aftermath of their actions. But still, the fact that they stepped forward to take on this huge job like shouldn't be underestimated. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I, I know that would be so hard to make that choice. Ugh. I can't imagine. I mean, all of these are just mind-blowing, honestly. There's this, um, so this other man, his name's Alfred Vanderbilt. He was not the nicest guy when he was living his life. He was kind of a playboy, and he was a very wealthy, wealthy man, and drank and partied and womanized around during his life. Mm-hmm. And he was on board the Lusitania, in May 1915, and so he, there were tons of German U-boats around in the waters, but they assumed that since they were on a non-military ship, that they would be safe. Mm-hmm. But as we all know, the Lusitania was attacked, and it started mm-hmm. going down. And Vanderbilt, he was a first-class passenger, so he was given a life jacket, and he immediately gave it away. And as the ship started to sink, he made sure that as many children got into the lifeboats as possible. Wow. And so, like, he was a first-class man. He could have very easily gotten a spot on a lifeboat, but he was still trying to save others when the boat sunk. And his body was never found. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that's good. I feel like if you're a bad person but you go out like that, it sort of not makes it okay that you did bad things beforehand, but it helps even the score a little bit, right? Yeah, I mean, he was he sacrificed himself to help children get off the boat, so it's like that's that's a decent thing to do. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Get some brownie points for that one. Yeah. Um, Oh, this one's interesting. There was a man named Captain Lawrence Oakes. He was an English man, and he he was traveling on a polar expedition um, for Great Britain in 1910 with uh, another explorer named Robert Falcon Scott. Mm -hmm. And he was pushing to make the final descent to the South Pole, and they were traveling for about 79 days. However, when they got there, they saw a tent that was left behind by the Norwegian ex- explorer, Roald Amundsen, and he had beaten them to the South Pole by 35 days. So they were, like, really sad. They'd been traveling for so long to, like, be the first people to um, explore the South Pole, and they got, and they got beat. And so they started heading back, and they were really struggling because there were a ton of, you know, it was very harsh conditions. Okay. And this man, Oates, was really, really having a tough time, and his feet were frostbitten, and he was just walking very slowly. And he was upset because he knew his condition was slowing down the rest of his team. And so he left his tent, and he told Scott, um, I'm just going outside, and I'm, I might be some time. And so he basically just, like, wandered out into the South Pole 
and died alone because he knew that his progress was he, he knew he was slowing down the, re- the rest of his men hmm. and so they were able to continue and make it out wow yeah um his body was never located either so they just let him go off by himself though were they just like oh he must have sacrificed himself let's go yeah they they kind of understood what was going to happen okay but what's sad is scott the other man died in his tent uh 20 miles later yeah but on the spot where oats is believed to have perished um there's a memorial that says hereabouts died a very gallant gentleman he walked willingly to his death in a blizzard to try and save his comrades beset by hardships that's hard these are hard choices. So this isn't as uplifting as I thought it would be. I know, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm trying to find maybe one that's a little bit. There's one about a whole village that um, sequestered themselves during the plague in like the 1600s because they knew that if anyone left their village, they would spread the disease. So they basically just quarantined themselves. Self-imposed. Yeah, and wow. it was this entire village, and everyone agreed that they were going to stay in quarantine, and 260 villagers died out of 800. Wow. Yeah. But they kept the plague from spreading, which was like... Isn't that crazy? Like, I know it wasn't even that, like, that was what would happen back then if certain yeah. diseases spread, but isn't that, like, can you imagine these days, those numbers of... Of people ag- all agreeing to sacrifice themselves? No. Or even just I can't imagine. thinking about diseases like that, like that high percentage of people catching a disease even in a place that's quarantined mm-hmm. and dying and wow. It's yeah. really incredible. Um, it's hard. I wonder how many of those people felt like it was like the, in both in the story, like you were talking about, it was sort of like these really hard choices, but they knew what choice they'd make. Like it was still mm-hmm. an obvious choice. It just was a hard choice. Yeah. I wonder how many of those people were like, uh, this sucks, but obviously I'm gonna do I'm gonna do this. I just don't know. I mean, I just can't imagine. Like, I I just value my life more, you know, so much. I can't imagine doing that. I know that sounds horrible to say, but like, especially in so many cases where they were like strangers, like you know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty selfish. <laughs> oh my gosh, there was one. Okay, I'll read this last one because this was really incredible. So there was a priest. Uh, his name was. His name was Maximilian Kolbe. I know that name. Uh, maybe you've heard this story. So he was a Franciscan friar who lived in Poland during um, World War II. And he was, you know, really devoted to his faith. But when the Nazis invaded, he basically was given a chance to earn privileges in exchange for signing a document that would recognize his German ancestry. And he refused. And his monastery was shut down. He was arrested. And he was transferred to Auschwitz. Uh, and he was prisoner 16670. Mm. Um, but while he was imprisoned, he carried on, you know, ministering to people and uh, spreading his faith and like offering people comfort. And uh, there was an incident what, that happened in 1941 where 10 prisoners escaped and they got away. And in retaliation, the Nazi guards picked 10 prisoners to be starved to death in an underground bunker to say like this Mm -hmm. is what happens if you try to escape 10 of your own will be killed Mm -hmm. and so they picked 10 random people that were going to be starved to death and one of the men who was chosen said you know said i have a wife and i have children and so the priest offered to take his place wow and so he was put in the bunker and left there to die and the story was that he was the last person to die. He lasted two weeks, and he led all the condemned men in prayer until the very last days. And he was recognized by the Catholic Church in 1955 to be on his way to sainthood. And he was canonized in 1982 and named a martyr of charity. And the man whose place he took lived to be 93 years old, and he dedicated most of his life to telling everyone about this man who saved him. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I can't imagine someone making that kind of sacrifice for me either. Oh my gosh. And and also just like living with that survivor's guilt too, I think would be hard. Like Yeah. I mean, anyone at Auschwitz already is going to suffer from some of that and then especially yeah. in that case. Yeah. And to like feel like you have to honor their sacrifice by living but then still feeling kind of consumed by that guilt. It has to be man, a tough situation to be in. Yeah, I think I knew he was a saint, but I don't think I knew that whole backstory, or at least I hadn't remembered it. So Yeah, it was 
just really incredible. So should we see what crazy choices and sacrifices have to be made in the third book? Yes. Um, and it's coming out very soon. It's not even out yet right now as we're speaking, but it is called Finale, which I love. Good name. Yes. Do you want to read a little bit about it? Yeah, I'll read what is on Amazon. Great. Welcome, welcome to Finale, the third and final book in Stephanie Garber's New York Times bestselling Caraval series. A love worth fighting for. A dream worth dying for. Mm. An ending worth waiting for. (laughs) It's been two months since the fates were freed from a deck of cards. Two months since Legend claimed the throne for his own. And two months since Tella discovered the boy that she fell in love with doesn't really exist. With lives, empires, and hearts hanging in the balance, Tella must decide if she's going to trust Legend or a former enemy. After uncovering a secret that upends her life, Scarlet will need to do the impossible, and Legend has a choice to make that will forever change and define him. Caraval is over, but perhaps the greatest game of all has begun. There are no spectators this time, only those who will win and those who will lose everything. Ooh. Dun dun dun. Yikes! So there's not really a game. The stakes are higher. It's all real. Uh, I can't wait. It needs to come out now. We still have six days to wait. I'm still confused whose perspective it's going to be from. I don't know. I hope it goes back and forth or balances somehow. Because I like both Tella and Scarlett. I like both girls too, yeah. And I like their friendship or their sisterhood. Yeah, and I want to see them equally. Oh, and I should say that um, we're reading up to chapter 31, which is... Scarlet chapter. Ooh, so I guess there are different points of view. Ooh. I kind of miss Scarlet, even though I really like getting into Tella's brain and she's really fun and different. Mm-hmm. I that was my biggest complaint about this book was not like just seeing Scarlet and Julian from the side and not really knowing what was going on. Especially because her and they weren't really talking. Scarlet and Tella weren't talking that much. Yeah. I agree. And also I don't know if the girls were different enough, personally. Like, I don't know, part of me was like, oh, Tella could really be Scarlet. I mean, they we were told of some of their differences, but I don't know if I saw that all that much. Well, especially, like I said earlier, when you get into the point where it was like, oh, they're both falling for a character who happens to be brothers, who's a player in this mm-hmm. game, and they both have a fake fiance. Like, some of their, situationally, they were in very similar boats, actually. Yeah, that's true. Even though I think they... I think they were different in, like, a background sense, but in terms of the choices they had to make in the game and, like, the situation they were put in, I think were very similar. So I would be curious if it does alternate if they do feel different enough or not. Because I also feel like Tella wasn't... Well, Tella was really concerned about the mom, I guess, but she wasn't that concerned about Scarlet the whole time, whereas Scarlet, I feel like, even though she struggled with it, was very much trying to protect her sister. Yeah, she was much more protective and much more concerned with, like, modesty and... And trying to think things through and... Yeah. She was definitely more like the quote-unquote good, obedient daughter. Yep. So, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see what we think after the next book. All the cards will fall into place. That's my prediction. (laughs) Uh, Do you have a joke for me? Yes, I do. Great. When do you go at red and stop at green? I don't know. When you're eating a watermelon. Ah, that's a good riddle. I really like that. So this was inspired by, I I was at a family event this weekend, and I asked my cousins, they were all younger than me, but I was like, do we have any good dad jokes in our family? Because I feel like my grandpa used to tell a bunch. (laughs) And they, like a bunch of them Mm -hmm. were like, oh, Aunt Carrie tells this really funny joke. Like, haha, like I remember this growing up, but no one could remember how the joke actually goes. So this is what we got because my aunt was there also. We asked, this is, we're not really sure if this was the full joke because it doesn't make 100% sense, but it might have made sense to us when we were little. (laughs) Okay. Honey, do you want to get married? Cantaloupe, only got a banana. (laughs) What? We're not sure where the banana part came from, but the honeydew and the cantaloupe are related. What does the banana have to do with it? I don't know. It's also a fruit. Cantaloupe, only got, only got a banana. Honeydew. You want to get married? Cantaloupe. Oh my god, a banana. And we remember it being told when there were bananas, like, on the counter. Like, so maybe it was a situational joke? Maybe. Like, I'm trying to, like, say say it slowly to see if it actually sounds like something else. We all sat around the table, and we were like, but what about the banana? And, we're, and, that, and then we were just giggling about the, because it didn't belong, it was even funnier to us. Maybe that was just part of the joke. <laughs> you know, also we were That young. was just the purpose, yeah. And I have one more related joke for you. Oh, good. What do you get when you cross a fruit and a dog? 
Mm, I don't know. Melancholy. Oh, I like that. <laughs> That's funny. So yeah, there's apparently a lot of melon jokes out there. Some of them are very weird, though. Really? I, that was my really yeah. Because I was trying to find the same joke and I couldn't <laughs> find it. Who would have thought? <laughs> what happens if life gives you melons? I don't know. You realize you're a dyslexic. <laughs> that one's good. <laughs> I like that. So. If anyone knows why there's a banana in that joke, please let us know. <laughs> and you can do that by emailing us at mnktalkya at gmail.com or by following us on Instagram and Facebook at mnktalkya. That was such a good unplanned transition. I know. We didn't even, we didn't even talk about doing that. <laughs> oh, man. And now it probably sounds like we did talk about doing that and we're being sarcastic, but we but really we did. didn't talk about it. <laughs> anyway. We couldn't have planned a segue that good. <laughs> okay. Anyways, on that note, Let's wait till the book comes out and then go read. It just came out. Yay. If you guys are in a city where Stephanie Garber's coming around, go and see her and get your book signed because I'm missing. Because we can't. Yeah. (laughs) I literally leave like right before she comes to Arizona and go to Atlanta and then I'm gone from Atlanta by the time she's there and I'm very upset about it. Me too. I really want to meet her. She just seems like a really cool person. Like I would be really excited to meet her. Yeah. Agreed. But we can't, so... So let mm-hmm. us know, if, if you go, let us know everything about her. I'm feeling pretty melancholy about Me it. too. <laughs> Bye, bookworm. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.